The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Good morning. Let's go ahead and start in prayer, or with prayer. Holy Father, again, we thank you for this time that we can come and gather together. Uh, We thank you for this day, Lord, that we can be with one another and hear your word and be able to participate, God, with, with your people and singing your praise and hearing prayers, Lord, to you, and Lord, to spend the day uh, being blessed, Lord, by being, being part of your family, God. We ask that you would, Lord, help us this day. We pray that you would open up our ears and our eyes and our hearts, God, to receive what you have for us. We pray for this morning, God, as we go through this uh, the book Pilgrim's Progress, and we ask, God, that you would use it. Lord, we ask that you would help me to be able to uh, speak things uh, clearly and truly. And Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this time, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are going through Pilgrim's Progress, which is something we really unusual for us, not just to be going through the book, book of the Bible, and so unusual that I'm thinking it's probably the only time we've done something like this. But anyway, right? <laughs> Okay, so anyway, uh, Daniel started out last week with the introduction, and today uh, the topic was to go to the wicked gate, through the wicked gate, up to it, but this is divided into two sections for us that, who are teaching it, and I have it this week, and then Brian has it, and so I was thinking, that's kind of weird, <laughs> and so I was like, what do you do? Uh, do you... Do you cover the same material that Brian's going to cover next week? Yeah, and I was like, oh, that's really awkward. Or, you know, so I'm not sure. So anyway, instead of, going, instead of me going all the way up through the wicket gate, I thought what I would do is take a detour, hopefully not through Bypass Meadows, but anyway, <laughs> to uh, maybe talk a little bit about the structure of the book and how, how it will... How, Bunyan wrote it and how that actually works for us to understand things. So we will eventually get to Mr. Worldly Wiseman and the Wicked Gate, but I'll leave most of that for Brian for next week to cover. So again, uh, the book opens with the narrator. He's lying down in a den to sleep, and he dreams a dream. And of course, uh, lying down in a den, he, it's John Bunyan, and he's in prison. He's in prison uh, for preaching the gospel. So he's, again, it's an allegory, right? So he's explaining these things, but he's giving us the picture of it as he tells the story. So he lies down in the den, he dreams a dream, and it gives us the uh, opening literary framework of the uh, book, which is a dream vision. That's what the book is. Uh, so if you're like uh, genre and stuff, literary dream vision is what Pilgrim's Progress would be, of course, it's allegory and other things too, but he's, dream, he's dreaming a dream, and as he dreams the dream, he unfolds for us uh, what he wants us to know. So right away, he starts out with the first person. He's dreaming the dream, and he's telling the story, right? He's saying, I, I went and I was lying down in a cave or in a den, and I dreamed a dream. So that's first person, and he's telling the story, but he's going to do something and it's a, just a literary device, and it's pretty interesting. He's going to switch pretty quickly from first person, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this, to actually the third person with people talking in it, right? So it's going to go from Bunyan saying, I saw this, to Christian now talking, and Christian's wife talking to him, and Christian's children talking to him. 
And what that does, if you think about it, it's, it's in the book when you read it, or any book for that matter, when you read, these things are subtle, but they, they actually are very, very profound literary devices. And what this does is it actually transports us from just listening to a story to being in the story. Right? So now somebody's not just telling me a story, but has, now I'm, in a sense, I'm right alongside of them listening to the conversation. So I'm no longer just listening to a story told to me, but I'm actually part of the story. For those of you who like to read, you know this is one of the great experiences about reading, and certainly one of the great experiences about reading fiction, is after a bit, as you get into the story, you actually feel like you're in the story. Right, you start to read it and you start to enjoy it. And you start not like I, not like you think I'm right next to him, but your whole uh, emotions and your mind and everything is now you're 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 there in the story, right? You're in it, and it's not just instruction now. It's not just a, a pedagogical exercise, or it's not just didactic. But as he's teaching us, he's teaching us this way: I'm there. And I'm, I'm listening to it. And, and of course, with Pilgrim's Progress, the imagery is just, just so good that it moves your heart, right? It moves your heart in many ways, but as Christians, it's going to move our heart because as Bunyan's speaking, again, he's speaking, uh, it's very much autobiographical. So as he's going through these things and he's bringing in these characters and he's bringing in these situations, your heart resonates with it. You start to think, oh yeah, that's me, or, yeah, that's someone I know, or that's a situation I've been in, or that's how I feel right now. So, so Bunyan wants to engage us that way, right? This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to teach us. He was a pastor. Actually, at the time that he's writing Pilgrim's Progress, he's combating certain things uh, that, you know, that we might combat, like as just you know, uh, get up and give a sermon or something. And, of course, he did. He was, he was a great preacher. But in, in this case, he's combating these things in a different way. So, as we go through, uh, he wants to teach us what it, what, how Christianity or how Christ impacts our life from the, from the very beginning all the way to the end, right? This is, this is the story. This is the pilgrimage. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to come under the conviction of sin. This is what it looks like to be converted. This is what it looks like to traverse the path, the narrow pathway, all the way to the celestial city. So, this is his story and as he does it, you know, he's really going to teach us a lot. He's going to teach us about law and gospel. Right, right in the beginning here uh, with Mr. Worldly Wiseman, we're going to encounter, oh, and we already have a really profound theological truths, right? We're, we're encountering them, sometimes pretty uh, clearly, other times more subtly. But nevertheless, uh, Bunyan is trying to teach us, and he's trying to teach us not just and if I could say it this way, not just simple things, okay, but he's trying to teach us very, very, very deep, rich things. And so we're going to encounter law and gospel. We'll encounter things like the uh, order of salvation, okay, which theologians will write pages and pages and pages and pages about in, 
in, uh, in big books to explain uh, the order of salvation and then, and then they'll come along and some of them will write big books to explain why there is no order of salvation, right? And so uh, Bunyan, though, will cover this uh, territory in ways that we can actually uh, understand it. Again, not, I mean, everybody here is intelligent. We would understand a reading a big book, too. But it kind of grasps our hearts, again. It grasps us in a way so that as we're getting this truth in, we're getting it into, it's like almost like feeding the whole man. And, of course, that's what stories do, right? Stories teach us that way. Uh, we're going to learn about justification. And throughout the book, we're going to learn about uh, justification and sanctification and what that looks like. What, what's, you know, what's the distinction? Of course, they're inseparable, but what's, what's the distinction? And then one of his big themes is perseverance. And can a Christian lose his salvation? And for those of you, for, again, familiar with John Bunyan, you know he struggled with assurance of faith. He, it was very, very difficult. He took a long time uh, after his initial conversion, to actually come to a place where he felt settled in his faith. So that is something, again, that for most Christians, if you, if you or I, if we didn't experience that maybe early on, certainly for most of us, there comes a point in your life where you start, you know, you go through a trial or something happens and you start to think about these things. Well, Bunyan is writing from personal experience, but he also has the ability to explain flat out right. So when he's, when he's uh, telling his story, your story's in there. And when, he, and when he talks about what it's like to not have assurance, but he does it in this way that is through his characters, and he's expressing these things, again, your, your heart can be uh, really moved at times, in fact, at times terrified. We're going to encounter characters that will uh, sometimes make us think, oh no, that sounds like me. And I sure hope it isn't me, right? You know, wow, that sounds just like me. And, and it can actually be terrifying. And of course, he goes, uh, along with other things, uh, just what temptation looks like. And, and so Bunyan is, is uh, going to, um, the whole scope, right, from beginning to end of what it looks like uh, for someone to come to Christ and what it looks like for that person to walk in grace and what it looks like ultimately, for Christ to carry, to carry him across, right? So again, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory, but actually you're going to see a whole bunch of literary genres, right? So uh, you're going to have a spiritual autobiography or biography. And again, it's, uh, if you know anything, if you've read anything about Bunyan himself, besides Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Grace Bounding to the Chief Sinner is what I'm thinking of primarily, uh, he, he was an open book as far as his life and as far as uh, just trials and things that he went through. And so you're going to see that throughout this book. You're going to see things, again, where it's like, oh, that's him, right? That's exactly what he went through. And again, but the idea, well, it's, it's common to all Christians, right? Not, not, not in the specific, obviously, but all Christians encounter these things. All Christians, all Christians encounter Mr. Worldly Wise Man, right? There's not a Christian who doesn't encounter him and encounter him daily, right? It's just when, he's, when we picture him as Mr. Worldly Wiseman, it's like, oh, okay, maybe I should be a little more careful with what I watch <laughs> you know, or, or what I'm doing because maybe this guy is sneaky and maybe he's trying to you know, get his way into my life and, and, and get me going where I should not go. Of course, it's a conversion story. 
And it's a great conversion story. Uh, after after uh, the interpreter's house, we're going to uh, read how Christian loses his burden. And uh, I first read Pilgrim's Progress, I think, when I first became a Christian, so, you know, 50 years ago or something, a long time ago. And that part is just, it, you just cannot read it. I don't think it's just hard to read. Or, you know, maybe in a setting like this as we read it, not so much, but by yourself just reading and to read Christian loses burden, uh, you, it brings you to tears. And I mean, you just think about God's grace in your life and you just think about what it is to lay down your burden at the cross and the way he pictures it and because he's been carrying the burden for so long. And that when it finally falls off, and it falls off because he sees the cross. And again, you're, you're encouraged, you're blessed, and sometimes I've read it and I've been convicted. Like, like what, where am I at? You know, what, what am I doing that this isn't moving me, right? What am I doing that I can read this now and not be moved like I was moved at, at, a, at another point in time? Uh, again, it's a dream vision. It's a travel story, interestingly enough. It's a character sketch, and I did a little bit of research. So, I, but I want to hold uh, you to hold me. So it could be one. Uh, I think they think it's one of the first uh, books in the English language that actually develops a character sketch of people in a way that Bunyan does it. So that he actually develops these characters, and we begin to know them and see them. It's kind of interesting. In, the, in that sense, even though it's pre-modern. It's a, a psychological narrative in that sense. And what do I mean by that? Is that he's not putting you down on a couch necessarily. He's telling you about his inner, the, uh, the, what he feels on the inside. And, uh, Augustine's uh, Confessions was the first, we would call a psychological book that way, where someone actually started to tell you what they felt like on the inside with these things. Well, Bunyan, of course, is doing this all the way through. Uh, and, and it's not, you know, it's not just... Um, therapeutic in the sense like we think about it, but because he's opening up his insides for us in a sense, you know, again, that's, that's something that we, we can, not, not every point, not every character, but certainly as you go through Pilgrim's Progress, there, there will without a doubt be um, parts that just will, will you just go, you just either go, wow, that's just so good, or wow, that's kind of scary again, you know, because he writes, he writes, he writes in a way where he's, 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 again, he's not just talking about like some type of um, easy believism, right? And certainly not that at all. He, he goes into what it's like to actually struggle uh, the whole way. So <clears throat> the, the genres, right, and his writing style, uh, they enable him to present all these topics, right, in a way that's accessible, that, that we can understand it. You know, it, it helps us, touches our souls. So again, I, 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 there's just so many, but um, when he loses his burden is one, but the other, uh, there are a couple ones, but two of them want to bring out, and one of them is when uh, Christian finally crosses the river. So Christian gets, you know, he finally will finish his journey, right? Before he finishes his journey, he's on this side of the river, and the river symbolizes uh, death, right? And the celestial city's on that side. And it's now time to enter the river and cross over. And he's entering with his friend, hopeful, has been with him the whole time. And as you're going across the river, uh, for the one, uh, the river is like, you know, not very deep. And so he's walking and he's making, he's making his way across. But for Christian, he starts to, 
he starts to lose his footing a little bit. And Bunyan describes it, that the water's, the water's getting deeper, and in fact, it's coming up, and he, and he starts to be afraid. And again, it, co- it comes out his, his fear, right? His lack of assurance and his fear of, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Right up to the very end. And so uh, his partner, his, his friend, his companion, is trying to encourage him, and he's saying, don't worry, don't worry, it's okay, it's okay. The ground's good, the ground's solid, you'll be able to make it. And of course, Christian the whole way is like, no, I know you can make it, I know the ground's good for you, I know that, I know that uh, the gates will be open for you, I know that you'll make it across, but I'm not going to be able to. And he, he, he draws it out, it's one of the longer uh, sections that he does, but as he draws it out, you begin to think about, he's, he's afraid, am I gonna make it? Am I gonna make it right up to the very, at the very end when I'm crossing the river, and now I'm afraid. I'm afraid, am I really, am I really uh, one of God's elect in a sense? You know, am I really one who will make it across? But the way he does it is to show you a man struggling to get across this river as the water's getting higher and higher and higher. And of course, as the water's getting higher, that's not encouraging him, right? It's, 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 it's like, it's like he, again, so you could, uh, I mean, think about how he does this. It's like, okay, hey, you're a Christian. You believe in Jesus. It's gonna be okay. Well, okay, except for now the water's here, okay? And then, and then it's, well, now the water's here. And so, and so he's afraid. And, and yet, and yet, he, and yet when he, when he has the point where he begins to put, he, he puts his foot on solid ground, right? And, 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 and at that point, you're just, boom, you know, you know, whatever's going off, you know, it's so good. But I have, sat, I have sat with people in the hospital who are dying, saints in the hospital, and read, this pa- read that passage to them. And it was a privilege and an honor to do it. And it was so powerful, Right? And I've been with Brian on one occasion where he, he read it to one of the saints that was in this church here that was going uh, home to be with the Lord. And I mean, yeah, now yes, it's not scripture, don't get me wrong. And we read scripture to people all the time. And it's, it's scripture, it's God's word, right? I'm not making that comparison or contrast, but I'm saying to, to, at certain times sitting with a saint who's ready to cross over, and maybe has some fear, and you read, and you read that, it, it's just, I, again, all, all, all I could think of when I was listening to Brian read it, I was thinking, Lord, why, why, would, you, why would you bless me, you know, to be here and to hear that, right? And it was just so powerful. So Christiana is the same thing, and I, I, I've been used this for like, uh, I think Ricardo's um, funeral service and others, where she gets, uh, she's waiting to go over, and, and she gets the announcement, and it says, today, uh, you know, how, today, good lady, your master is awaiting, right? And again, it's hard for me to even talk like that, but when you're, when you're talking to saints and you're in a funeral service, and you start to read that passage, everybody, everybody says, wow, that's what's going to happen for me. Right? There, there's gonna be there's gonna be a day where I'm gonna get I'm gonna get the uh, the role, you know, and it's gonna say today is your day, right? <laughs> but that day is gonna be the great day, right? Today today your master expects you to be in his presence, arrayed in robes, 
of glory and righteousness, right? And you read that and you just go, okay, I'm ready to go out <laughs> this week and live for Christ, right? I, I, I want to do something for Jesus today, right? In a, in a really good way. So again, he, he does this and, he, and he's writing for us, but a lot of it has to do with his own struggles. He, he had a hard time. Not every Christian has a hard time, but many Christians do, and every Christian has some period of a hard time. I would think if we went through life and never had any difficulties, well, you know, the scripture actually warns us that that's not a very good thing to have happen to you, right? That, in fact, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves, and he chastens those who are his, and if we ever, if we went through all of our life, without any difficulty, the Bible says that actually would be a sign of maybe not being in Christ, and that's not a sign of God's disfavor. And yet, as we're in it, as we're going through it, you certainly do feel like, oh, maybe I am in a place of God's disfavor. Well, Bunyan knew that, right? So C.S. Lewis, another one uh, person, uh, probably most people familiar, he said, he said, the trouble with having a good imagination and I'm paraphrasing him, the trouble with having a good imagination and, and the ability to write is everybody thinks that you actually know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> and, 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 and if you've read Lewis, you know that, right? I mean, you go, man, that guy really knew his stuff, right? And, and he's going, yeah, actually, I just had a good imagination, right? I could write that. Okay, well, Bunyan knew what he was talking about. Uh, Bunyan isn't just, okay, I can, I can read the scriptures, or I can, I can look at other people's lives, and I can, I, can, I can in some way, you know, have some idea of what's going on, and I'm able to articulate these things in a way that people can understand. No, Bunyan actually knew. I mean, he, he's like, you know, do you know what it's like to stand underneath the mountain, Mount Sinai, and have it feel like it's going to fall on your head? And he's like, I know exactly what that feels like. I know exactly what that feels like. But he, but he, he also... He also knew what it was, and as we go through the book again, to know the comfort of God and to know, and to know God's grace in your life. So we know, we know, okay, we know all kinds of ways. You know, I was thinking I could get up here today and, uh, you know, I would have had to memorize it in some type of complex mathematical equation, and I could have said it, and maybe Nathan and a few other engineers would have gone, ooh, you know, that, that's really cool, you know? I mean, like, wow, <laughs> you know? And the rest of us would have gone, you know, like, huh, right? But when you tell a story, everybody Everybody knows, everybody's, wow, I'm into that. And I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, like with Brian, it's like it has to be a Western or something. But I mean, still, you tell a story, you tell a story, and people understand. It, op- it opens up our hearts, right? And we know, so we don't, it's not just this, right? It's, it's this. You, you, you're learning or understanding, you know, in ways that you're not necessarily thinking about it, that you're doing that. But again, uh, of course we do this with our kids, right? From the very beginning, how do we teach our kids? Right, well, there, there's some just instruction, but there's a lot of storytelling. And when you sit down at night, or when, with me, when my wife sat down at night talking to the kids or reading to the kids, she's reading them stories. Now, reading the Bible, reading, but the Bible is one big story, I would argue. But reading them stories, right? Because that's how God made us. God, God put us in his story, and we're, we're made to understand these things. So Leland Reichen, uh, the subject of literature 
is human experience rendered as concretely as possible, which I, I just think that's an interesting way to put it. Literature and human experience rendered as concretely as possible. In other words, he, he's arguing that the best way, the most concrete way, that, that, that's, that's a, right now I'm talking, there's nothing concrete in a sense about that, right? I mean, you can't see little words come out. You can hear them, and they, you know, they, they, they touch your ears and all this kind of stuff. But he's saying, no, when you, when you get it right, right, when you use a metaphor, or when you use a simile, or when you use literature in some way that you get it right, there is nothing more concrete than that. I mean, that hits people, you know, like a proverbial ton of bricks, right? Okay, that's how concrete it is, right? And, and, and that's really how, by and large, that's how we learn. That's how we understand things. So he goes on. He says, literature exists to make us uh, share a series of experiences, and literature appeals to our image-making and our image-perceiving capacity. Uh, the, and then here he goes, the subject of literature is the universal experience. And the truth that li- literature imparts is truthfulness to life knowledge in the form of seeing things accurately. Again, I love that, that that's, that's how we see things accurately. And again, uh, if uh, thinking about, you know, physicists or something like that, you know, may be able to observe things, may be able to uh, put the, uh, things down in equation. Equations are kind of interesting because they're symbols, right? So it's not, it, you know, oh, that's scientific. Oh, well, it's a symbol, it's, not, it's, 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 you know, you can't communicate apart from using symbols and metaphors and analogies and things like that. Everything we learn, we learn this way, right? So that this guy, Leland Ronkin, is saying, this is the way that we see things accurately, right? So uh, Niels Bohr, uh, quantum physics guy or whatever, and uh, uh, Albert Einstein, okay, they have this big controversy. Is it quantum or is it relativity? And they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, right? Quantum has won out so far as, you know, how people are doing stuff today. But nevertheless, the fact is, those guys were brilliant and they're seeing something about the universe and they don't really know what they're seeing for how brilliant they are. And they can't, even, it's like, is it this way? Is it this way? Is it this way? Is it this way? And, uh, and Bohr's ends up, you know, I don't know that much about quantum, but the idea that it seems as if uh, something can be, a particle can be here and can be there at both the same time and in the same way, which seems to violate the laws of contradiction, but nevertheless, that's what they're seeing, right? And he comes up with this, uh, his dictum, every, for every, uh, every great truth is also a great uh, untruth or no truth. Okay, well, that's just stupid, okay? <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So you, you don't know that way. <laughs> okay, I don't care how bright you are. You don't know that way. It's, it's just not how we know. Okay, uh, we know differently. He knew differently. Einstein knew differently. When they're trying to explain their theories, they can only explain them by using an analogy or metaphor, things like this, right? And this lady, Elizabeth Sill, metaphor is one of the vital and basic powers of human thinking a power which works by means of constant play, which the mind signals out and matches, figures perceived, invented, and inherited. It assumes that all thought works in some such fashion. So again, when people are writing, whether they think about it or not, the, the assumption is all thought works in some such fashion. That is, thought is never, despite its appearance, a detached activity or a product of the brain, never just simply that, right? 
uh, nor even a, a soul and pure relationship between intellect and phenomena. There's, God has made us in his image, and so we perceive, but we perceive through the imagination, right? We make connections that, that you know, obviously animals can't make, you know. We make connections. We see things, and we make, we make connections, and these connections are made not through a simple deduction, you know, da, 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 but through our imagination. We perceive something, and we see something else, and now we're, we're connecting the dots, and then, in a sense, we kind of go back and try to figure out what it was we saw, Right, so Francis Bacon, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, uh, uh, blamed with uh, bringing in modernity, I guess, uh, wrote for that. For all that concerns, he's listen. He's criticizing. For all that concerns, ornaments of speech, uh, similes, treasuries of eloquence, and the like emptiness, let it be utterly dismissed. So here he's trying to be. He's trying to be the pure scientist, and this is you know Bacon was one Hume. A kind of another, you get later in, on, you get these guys with the analytics school and stuff like this, and it's like, oh, okay, no, no language makes sense, everything is nonsense, unless, unless it's just a definition or a statement of fact, right? And so th- this, is, this is how we really know, this is how language really works. Take away all, all the imagery, take away all the, uh, any way that we would dress up language, and knock it down to, it's either just gotta be a definition, or it's just a pure statement of fact, and that's the only reality. Well, of course, that statement is not a definition, nor a statement of fact, right? These guys, they were, you know, they were the proverbial fools, right? So smart that, that they were foolish. You can't, you, God didn't make us that way. He made us in his image, Right? He made us in his image, and so no matter how technical we're getting with something, or uh, maybe um, more along the ethical lines or something, no matter what it is, the way that we understand things is we understand them through our imagination, right? And by that, I don't mean make-believe. I mean, I mean we, connect, we connect dots, right, if I can put it that Even that, that's a, what's that? It's a metaphor, right? You know, when people get up and they, and they go, oh, we're just wired that way. Okay, well, that's a metaphor, right? We aren't wired that way. We're actually not just wired things. We're, in, we're embodied creatures in the image of God, and so we, we can actually perceive, right? We can understand things about reality. So again, C.S. Lewis said, if we're going to talk about things that are not perceived by the senses, we are forced to use language uh, metaphorically. So I was uh, with Ingrid. We were riding around. And I listened to the stuff that drives her nuts, but nevertheless, it was, uh, the guy was talking about, uh, uh, what's his name? I can't, I can't remember his name. He, he, he was a 15th century composer and uh, Pretorius. And actually, we sing one of the hymns, uh, so he, uh, he didn't write the words, but, but he, 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 he put everything together and it's called, Lo, How a Rose Ear uh, Blooming. And I think we sung it here. It's in our handbook. It's beautiful. It's just beautiful. Uh, but what I didn't know was the rose ear blooming. We sing it at, we, I think we've sung it at Christmas, and that's when people uh, mostly sing it. A rose ear blooming is a picture of Christ's birth. Right? And, and you listen to the song, and then you, and then you hear that, and you're like, oh. Oh, that's just too cool, right? I mean, that kind of stuff is just neat. But what's really neat is this. His, that's, that's human imagination, 
But there's a reality to that. Why did God make flowers? Well, I'm sure God, I, I'm sure God has a million and one reasons. But he made flowers so that we would be able to see something beautiful and perceive something about Christ and, and look at a flower. Okay, the whole material world exists for the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In, in, in one sense, uh, again, Lewis says, in one sense, the whole world's a metaphor, right? The whole world is teaching us something about God, and if our eyes were open, we'd see more. I, my personal thought of that is when we get into the new heavens and new earth, our eyes will be open. And one of the glories is we're just going to see, look at that, look at that, look at that. You know, It's all pointing to Christ. It's all pointing to Christ. And so, but think about this. A, a rose blooming, well, we, we you know, again, Dan's like, we're Baptists. We couldn't do that. Right? You can't make those kind of comparisons because you're going to go hung, right? But, uh, but this guy didn't have a problem with it. And, and, and you go, a rose air blooming is about the Christ child. And you're going, oh, man. I mean, so we're driving down the road, and, and of course, Ingrid appreciates beauty and music, and, and, and I'm just not that way, but nevertheless, I appreciate it in her, and she's really like, oh, that's just so beautiful, right? And, and again, my point is that, that you, you um, not only are touched just emotionally, you, you start to learn stuff. You start to understand things better. I, I, the, the idea, too, for us, I mean, uh, I think the Bible's put together this way. When we went through the Psalms, we saw Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 is about the righteous man. But what's the righteous man look like? A tree what? Yeah, which is a metaphor. Because <laughs> he's not a tree. But, there's, but he's saying something, and it's very profound. If God wanted to picture righteousness, he, he'll do it like this. He's going to put a tree by streams of water. And every human being, except for the fact that we're fallen, but apart from that, every human being would be able to look at that and not just, not just go, that's beautiful, not just go, that's pretty, though it is, but there would be something about that that would teach you about righteousness, right? You go, you go that. And of course, righteousness is what? It's a forensic term. It has to do with legal things. Look at a tree planted by streams of water and go, righteous? And yet God's saying, yeah, righteous. So, that, so again, that's, that's how God's uh, teaching us with things. So uh, what is a metaphor? Uh, it's, uh, with a metaphor, something is something. Similarly, something's like something. An analogy explains uh, one thing being like another helps us to understand it. So we talk about talking about God. All God talks uh, is a- analogical, right? In other words, everything with us with God is not unifical. It's not one for one, and it, it's not not being the same thing. It's something. Okay. So when we talk about the love of God, I know that when I I know love, I know you know love, and I in knowing that I know something of the love of God. Okay, I don't know it in a one-for-one correspondence, but I know something real and true about it. So uh, that's how those things work. So again, a metaphor, uh, it's, i just quote this, a word or phrase is used not literally, uh, but as a representation for vivid effect. In other words, the word or phrase denotes an object to suggest a similarity that is not literal. So we, again, we know it, but we know it through our imagination, right? Uh, an allegory, which is what, oh, what's he talking about? Finally, back to Pilgrim's Progress. An allegory, 
okay, is, uh, is an extended metaphor. Okay, it's just, it's just a story. It's a story told as one big metaphor. It's a story told as a metaphor, right? So again, C.S. Lewis, a good allegory exists not to hide but to reveal and to make the inner world more palatable uh, by giving it an imagined, con- and he uses concrete embodiment too. A good allegory, which is just the opposite of way, when people criticize allegory, they go, because it's not real, you know, because it's all make-believe, because it doesn't do anything. And here's Lewis, says a good allegory actually makes something concrete. So uh, reading uh, Spurgeon today, and this, this is one example of stuff that we read all the time, we, all of us, read stuff like this. But he was talking about prayer. And, uh, and he said this, okay. If our prayers had less of the tail feathers of pride and more the wing of faith, they would all be the better. Okay, now who here didn't get that? <laughs> right? I, I mean, I mean you, it's like, okay, whether it's like I didn't really care about it. Everybody knows what he's talking about, Right? There's a, the, 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 the tail feathers of pride, that your prayers have the tail feathers of pride, and they're really not going to make it up there, right, in a sense. I mean, that's the picture. Uh, but the wings of faith, well, they're going to they're gonna soar, right? And, 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 uh, and you can read something like that and go, oh, that's, that's a pretty cool picture, or that's just, you know, a real homey picture or whatever. But nevertheless, everyone here... Uh, grasp what he's getting at, right? And probably grasp it better than if I were just said, oh yeah, by the way, let me just stop for a second. Don't be proud when you pray, be humble. Okay, well that's true too, but you'd go, okay. <laughs> so, Bunyan, <clears throat> this, is this one of the way it works? Uh, okay, how does all this work? How does metaphor and all this stuff work in Bunyan's, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? One of the ways it works is, then this is interesting, uh, I think I got this from Leland Rankin, he avoids giving us visual descriptions of his characters. Isn't that interesting? Do you think you know the characters in Pilgrim's Progress? I want to say anybody's read it, go, yeah. He doesn't tell you, this guy was short, this guy was tall, this guy had a big beard, this guy had no beard. For, by and large, he doesn't do that, right? He, he doesn't do it that way. He achieves the portrait by how? Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Now, I don't know what your picture of Mr. Worldly Wise Man is, but I've got, a pretty, I've got a pretty clear picture of what he looks like, right? And he didn't have to tell me anything. I, I wanted, and I'm getting closer, but uh, listen to this, another really, 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 really great writer. And listen how he does it, because they do it two different ways. I suppose hobbits need some description nowadays. He says... Since they have become rare and shy of the big people, as they call us, uh, they are, or were, a little people, about half our height, smaller than the bearded dwarfs. <laughs> Hobbits have no beard. There is little nor, uh, or no magic about them, except the ordinary, everyday sort, which helps them to disappear quietly and quickly when large, stupid folk like you or me come blundering along, making a noise like elephants, which they can hear a mile off. They're inclined to be fat in the stomach. They dress in bright colors, chiefly green and yellow. Wear no shoes because their feet grow naturally leathery soles and thick, warm brown hair like the stuff on their heads, which is curly. They have long, clever brown fingers, good-natured faces, and laugh deep, fruity laughs, especially after dinner, 
which they have twice a day when they can get it. <laughs> That's a description, okay? I think I know what a hobbit looks like. But you know what he takes the rest of the book developing? Is that Frodo is courageous. That Bilbo is brave. And, and, and I, so like, uh, we're gonna be introduced, oh, well, I think it's in the second book, Mr. Greatheart, who's their guide. And as I was reading this, I was just thinking, what a funny contrast. Because uh, Bilbo really is brave, and he really is courageous. But if I had, if I had this description early on in the book, and then they go, uh, Christiane and her kids need a guide, and they go, oh, we know, just, just we're gonna send. Frodo, Mr. Greatheart. And out comes this little fat guy with this thing and goes, don't worry, I'll be your guide, right? And, 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 and you're like, you'd go, you'd go, you'd go, no way, right? No way. Well, Tolkien has to develop his character all the way through, and he does. It's just wonderful, he does, right? And he does it on purpose. Frodo is braver than Broermere, who's this big, giant man who ends up being a traitor, right? I mean, but he's a soldier, but who's, who's the braver one? We're actually Frodo, right? But Bunyan does it just like this. Mr. Greatheart. Okay, I know what that guy looks like right now, okay? I mean, I know what he looks like, right? Uh, I, when he, Mr. Worldly Wiseman again, I know, I know what he looks like. You, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he paints his picture simply by telling you who they are on the inside. And as you know who they are in the inside, you, you fill in the outside stuff. And it's, it's, again, it's one of the great, great things of, of his book, right? So again, Appliable, who we came across uh, last week, you know who he is because, you know, the way he is. He quickly changes his mind, right? He's influenced by everything. And you have a picture in your mind. Obstinate, you have another picture in your mind. You know, you picture Jason Kelsey or somebody big <laughs> with a big beard, right? You know, it's obstinate, right? And uh, impliable, probably not so big, you know? So anyway, that's, that's how he's doing this thing. So uh, 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 Leland Reichen again says, that's only the beginning of the Bunyan magic. Uh, his, uh, his characters are multidimensional, and, and some of them nearly, uh, and, in the sense that they nearly all of them represent three things simultaneously. And I'm sorry, I butchered that. He's saying all of his characters represent three things, okay? Uh, they are personality types, individuals with the propensity towards a trait, and we know it by the name that he's given them, right? Such as talkative. They are social types, people who have a certain effect as they mingle. Talkative gets on people's nerves because he's talkative, Right? And they all of them embody a moral or spiritual quality, right? All of them do. Again, the moment talkative, I'm not thinking I'm a real spiritual person, right? I'm just not. I already know. I already know how he's going to be. And, of course, he'll, he'll, he'll play his part out. But the thing is, he's painting these, these really deep or, you know, richly colored uh, characters. But he does it just like this, pliable, talkative, right? And, again... Uh, one of the things it does is, depending on how you read stuff, some of them remind you of other people. You know, like you can, again, Mr. Greatheart. I, I've had the privilege of knowing a lot of Mr. Greatheart's, or at least a few in my life, right? I, 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 these, these are guys that you just go, oh, man, I'm glad that I was, you know, came in contact with them. 
and stuff. So it's kind of like that, you know. Uh, some, sometimes, though, you know, you just remind you of yourself. So Mr. Ready to Halt, Mr. Feeble Mind, Mr. Despondency, his daughter Much Afraid. Again, not that every Christian goes through this all the time, but Christians do go through this. Uh, the idea that, that uh, Much Afraid, and, you know, not every single Christian in this room knows that, but most Christians in this room know what it's like to feel at least some point in your life like much afraid, or Mr. You know, hopefully not too many Mr. Ready to halt. But I'm sure there's been times where it's like, oh, you know, life just seems real hard. Or God seems more. God seems real distant. You know, God seems real far away. And and again, uh, but then other ones where maybe not so much reminding you of people that you know that might do that, but how you want to be, right? I don't want to be much afraid. I do want to be Mr. Greatheart. I, I see myself more as much afraid and not so much as Mr. Greatheart, but I aspire to Mr. Greatheart. Right? And it actually, again, when I read about him, there's something, as I read the character, I'm, I'm, I'm like, there's something in me that's moved in, in that sense, right? This is what writing literature does here. You're, you're moved that way. And you're like, oh, God, help me be more like that and help me be less, less like the other thing. So all of that to get to where we are left off last week. But I, I won't be like Brian and Daniel. I won't keep you up here for another hour after that. Right? <laughs> so that, was just the intro, that was just the introduction. Yeah, well, what? We got, we got eight minutes? Don't worry. I can give you a whole hour's worth of stuff in eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, Christian, the slough despond, and he encounters Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who hails from the town of Cardinal Policy. And uh, so, uh, with the introduction of the slough despond into the story, we meet another motif that's going to pervade the story, and that's physical places symbolize moral or spiritual reality. That's the other thing; he doesn't use characters. He uses the places that they're in, and, they, and, and, and they're telling us about the spiritual aspect of that. So the village called morality symbolizes the attempt to gain salvation by good behavior or by good works. The house of legality is an extension of that mindset. Mr. Legality's in here. The gate towards Christian aspires is also symbolic. Uh, and he's going to the wicked gate, and what does a uh, wicked gate symbolize? Well, that's going to be an interesting one. Okay? Uh, but as, a, as, a, as is with the rest of the book, it's just so much you, uh, you can relate to. So he just, gets out of the, he just gets out of the slough of despond. Like, just gets out of it, and you would think, learned his lesson. <laughs> but Bunyan is writing like he's writing to people who are just like him. And so what happens? Mr. Worldly Wiseman comes along, and what does Christian do? He listens. Okay, how many people have done something like that, right? I mean, I, God just delivers me. I was just in trouble. My folly caught up with me. God was gracious to me. He brings me out of it. I take two steps, and I go, oh, maybe I should go in that direction, right? Or, oh, maybe I should go in that direction. And, and it's like as you, you read this, and you go, yeah, that's me all over, right? It's like, it's like that's me. But of course, of course, Bunyan's not uh, ever left alone in this. And this is the other thing. It, it really is grace abounding to the chief of sinner. Bunyan makes the wrong step, listens to Mr. Worldly Wiseman, 
but, but God is with him, and God keeps him, right? The idea of perseverance is, uh, is all the way through here, God keeping, God keeping his people. So, uh, so um, the, a little bit of background, too. Mr. Worley Wiseman is because, he, as he's writing this, he's also a pastor, right? He, uh, he's in prison. At times he gets to go out of prison, gets to preach in churches, but he has a pastor's soul. There was a thing going around, interestingly enough, uh, latitudinarianism, okay? Uh, broad tent uh, Christianity, which some of the Anglicans were getting into, and as they got into it, well, how can you make broad tent Christianity? What do you, what do you have to downplay if you want to in include everybody into the Christian thing? What do you have to downplay? Yeah, what? Did you say something, Pat? You have to, you have to downplay doctrine, right? I, I mean, what separates us from other, uh, from heretics? Doctrine. If you want to include everybody into it, what do you got to downplay? You gotta downplay doctrine, right? So Bunyan's actually facing this. Well, what's the one doctrine that they're all gonna downplay, right? They, they, have to, they have to downplay the cross. They have to downplay, and what, what, are, they, what are they gonna actually start to, to, to talk about? Morality. Okay, here, here's, you know, it, it, what separates Christians, right, is, from heretics or from, you know, false things is Christ and the grace of Christ and all of Christ, right? and justification being all of Christ. What, what does every human being have in common? Self-righteousness, right? We can all keep certain laws that we want to keep. So what he found himself in historically was having to combat this idea of emphasizing morality. This was, so it's not, just, it's not just a story, right? It is, and it's a story that's universal in the sense that we can relate to it too, but it's a story that's actually taken place in his time. He's actually thinking, my people are listening to these things. How can I get my people to stop listening to these things? Well, again, he was a great preacher, so he believed in the word of God. But as he's writing this book, really right away, uh, oh, let's bring in Mr. Worldly Wiseman because that's who my people are starting to listen to. And I don't want them to listen to him. So let's, let's paint a picture of what that's like. So this guy comes in, and it's actually, there was a, a book written earlier uh, that had a character, Sir Mr. Worldly Wise, and some people think that Bunyan's character is uh, based on him, but more likely, he actually bases the character on a real person who was one of the main advocates of this broad tent um, Christianity. And so he makes him Mr. Worldly Wise because he's going, you, <laughs> right? You're Mr. Worldly Wise. Uh, but in any case, the idea here is, is, is what's going on with Christian and again, brings out the idea of perseverance and spiritual despair, right? The Christian persevering and the Christian undergoing spiritual despair. So Bunyan, again, struggled, struggled greatly, right? Uh, and so here, here he has his Christian, again, struggling, and he's struggling greatly. So he comes, and he's standing under the mountain, and there, there's real significance to that, too. And God sends him help, Right? The, the idea, too, of, of this perseverance, boy, or, and spiritual despair, main theme, okay, we're going to encounter that. Pretty soon here, we're going to encounter the man in the iron, iron cage. And if you've read the book, he is the scariest person in the whole book. There is no one as frightening as the man in the iron cage. And he's completely given over to spiritual despair. And yet, Christian, underneath the, underneath the mountain, with the law coming down, is given under spiritual despair uh, when he goes up the hill of difficulty and loses his role, loses his assurance, 
right? Spiritual despair. When he's in Downing Castle with uh, giant despair, he loses, he loses uh, his assurance and stuff. And the key, the key to, is this. God always brings, usually in the, in the form of another person, but uh, when they're in the prison, he just remembers. He, goes, he, he tells his friend, oh, look, I forgot I had a key. It's, it's the promises of God. Uh, remember, Daniel's taking us through the Slav despond, and, and, and the guy that's helping him says, why didn't you walk on the rocks? And he goes, what rocks? He goes, well, the promises of God, right? Th- this is key throughout. Spiritual despair is real. God doesn't let his people go. God brings people into people's life, and God's promises are the only way out. Uh, the man in the iron cage is, is a difficult guy, but he's, he's, he, he's refusing to listen to the promises of God. Right? He want, when he quotes scripture, all he quotes are the judgments of God. He doesn't, doesn't say anything about the promises. Everyone that gets out, everyone that gets out of spiritual despair is because they rely on the promises of God. And, and, and not, not in themselves, but relying on the promises of God. Well, um, oh, okay, let me do this. One of the, and you won't get to it unless you read book two, but one of the, one of the great passages on... Um, Perseverance is much afraid. So again, we brought up how you, you cross the river in order to enter into the celestial city. And for some, that's very difficult. For Christian, it was very difficult. Much afraid, who's been much afraid through the whole journey, you know, who has to have basically everyone help her along and carry her along. When it comes time for her to cross over the river to go to the celestial city, it says the river dropped to where it barely, it barely came up to her ankles. And what a picture of grace that is, right? That, that, and she actually sings a song. She, sing, she sings a song about it, about, about how God in his grace, right, drops a river down for those who need the river drop down all the way, right? And it's just this wonderful picture of perseverance. Who makes it across? Every single pilgrim makes it across. Every single one who's actually uh, has entered in through the right way and has, uh, has their seal in their school. Every single one makes it across. It doesn't matter if it's Mr. Greatheart or if it's little uh, much afraid or Mr. Halting or Mr. Feeble Mind. Uh, we all, we all get across, right? So I'm gonna end with this. Uh, Brian will pick it up. The wicked gate, a little bit of controversy in it. And why would the wicked gate be controversial? Has anybody picked up on that? What's he have when he comes to the wicked gate? A burden. What's he have when he goes through the wicked gate? What's the wicked gate? Thought it was maybe salvation. How's it, how come he still has a burden? Well, we'll leave that for Brian to figure out for you guys. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you again. Thank you for your grace in our lives. And as we go through the book, we pray that our hearts would soar uh, with the idea of how, how good you are and how faithful you are. We pray for this day, and again, we thank you, Lord, and ask that you would bless us and cause us, our lips and our hearts to be open to praise to our God. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.